what does St Bridget mean to you? As she conjure up memories of childhood days, excitedly gathering rushes to bring to school for the construction of intricate crosses? Do you remember squares of cloth being pressed into your hands by devout relatives, assuring you that to carry this token was to secure the saint's blessing for the year ahead? Now, we'll blast brooch near the veil, like Kritchikrasart, and like Although St Bridget's place in contemporary Irish life is perhaps less pronounced than it once was, her presence is still felt if you know where to look. So even if none of the foregoing reminiscences resonate with you, you might still be surprised by the connections you could find to Ireland's second saint, regardless of your age, gender or geographic location. Hers is a cult that is both colourful and complex, taking in ancient pagan roots and more sombre contemporary Christian overtones. Like each topic Johnny and I explore, I haven't actually said hello to you, Johnny. Hello. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome back to the <laughs> new season. Just woke up, right. <laughs> um, like each topic Johnny and I explore here in Blur and New Belgish, we never fail to surprise ourselves when we peel away the superficial layers of preconceptions we carry regarding these traditional subjects, themes, and festivals. And St. Bridget is a case in point. By the end of our hour together today, we hope to have pulled you through the pre-Christian firmament of demanding goddesses, through to the slave trade industry of 5th century Ireland, on into the competitive world of Christian Ireland, where Holy Sees slug it out for primacy, before rounding off our journey with a look at the more refined and wholesome folk tradition of, 20, of the 20th and 21st century Ireland, where we now stand on the cusp of the saint's annual feast day of 1st of February marking, as it does, the beginning of spring in the traditional calendar and heralding rebirth, reawakening and new beginnings. Not a bad note to start our new series of Blue New Belages 2019. So I'll hand you over now for some um, insightful thoughts from Johnny. Oh, not a sarcastic tone. It's like that, Katie. Thanks Don't ruin the mood you now, the best, the best uh, introductions. Mm. You do, you do. You only you flatter do. me because you want something, Johnny. No, not at all. I'm always aware that there's no, that something coming. That was lovely. <laughs> um, it's very, it is nice to be sitting here again. It is. It's been a long time and we have to thank our lovely loyal listeners mm-hmm. who have sent letters and cards and messages asking if we're all right. We have. Very and, glad. And care packages. Yes, and we are. Thank God. Um, and Happy New Year to everyone, by the way. Yes, indeed. It's worth saying Happy New Year. We've passed through the uh, the rigours of midwinter and um, it's fitting to, I suppose, to look at at a figure, we were talking to the director, to Chris Thorne Corrig, before we started recording this, but a figure who has a huge sense of devotion um, and kind of love for her still, I think, in Ireland. In I would tradition. say so, I would agree with that. More so than, um, than you know, the, the kind of either Ireland's other patron saint, St. Patrick, I think St. Bridget has a much deeper or kind of an aspect of a, an emotional connection in a way that don't really manifest in the same way um, with other saints in mm-hmm. particular. Um, so we'll look at, obviously, as you're describing the the figure of the saint herself, Laura Gardinger, but we'll look at the the pre-Christian roots of the festival, which are necessary to understand, I suppose, all of its symbolism and, and its origins and its meaning, I guess. And that will take us across, not just we'll, we'll leave Ireland, but go across to Britain, over to continental Europe, and as far afield as, as India to look at some of the Vedic and Hindu kind of scriptures there to see the roots of this dawn goddess kind of figure basically. and it might surprise people because we kind of grow up with a very as you'd imagine christianized version of bridget we do never yeah. really realizing until much later in life when you do research like this that these kind of pagan roots are very strong yeah i think it might, and it might speak to uh one of the reasons why she's held in such high regard and devotion by the people of this island in that 
the figure all pagans at heart essentially yeah well well it's like the the um, the figure of the saint has usurped the the uh, the role of the goddess so she's like a pagan saint essentially mm-hmm. in a way um, and so much of the material and, and customs that are that are practiced to celebrate or to honor her are patently unchristian yes. in, in their expression or they're 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 put loosely within the framework of christian theology but they're um they are apocryphal or they're practiced kind of by the people as it were but not necessarily as part of the official doctrine of the of the catholic church, church as such so behind the um the, the the kind of mask of a Christian veneer, out from that I suppose peeps this pagan goddess, and which links us back as this kind of living thread into a much older tradition, which is one that I think um, a lot of people would do well to 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 learn of and to, to even to I don't know draw consolation from or 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 kind of have that connection to I suppose and how it links into um, the natural landscape and our forebears and our ancestors and so on. Mm. Um, to start, I suppose we should describe what. So St. Bridget's Day is one of the quarter days? Yes, I think that's a good place to kind of give an umbrella for the topic. The overall. And so the quarter days, um, or they're sometimes referred to as the cross-quarter days in Irish tradition because they fall... They, well, first of all, their function is to divide the year into its four seasons, spring, summer, autumn and winter. Um, and they fall between, they fall halfway between the solstices and equinoxes of the year. So there's, that's what they're sometimes called, the cross-quarter days. So we have... The quarter days in Irish tradition are the 1st of February for spring uh, with Imbolc or, or Lola Brida. The 1st of May, uh, Bealtaine. The 1st of August is Lammas or Lunasa. Uh, and then the 1st of November, Samhain, Ihaan, Halloween. Um, so these kind of reference points throughout the year, they change the kind of character and nature of the, or they express the nature maybe of, of the upcoming season. Mm-hmm. And they all have a festival attached to them. And then every festival has its own, I suppose, yeah, symbolic reference points or expressions that give a certain orientation or a meaning to that period of the year. And in the case of St. Bridget's Day or Imbolc, the, the pagan pre-Christian festival that that, um, by, that replaced it, or by which it was replaced, um, it has fertility and propagation, renewal, regrowth, regeneration as its, as its focus, basically. So in order, I guess, to understand the... the to fully understand the festival of of, of uh, Saint Bridget's Day or her feast day, we need to come to a, a kind of clear understanding of, in bulk, of what it meant, and then of the, the pre-Christian figure of of Breed herself mm-hmm. as as a deity. Um, so I suppose, even to start about that, describing in bulk, um, I M B O L C is from the well. There's no set. There's there's been some argument about the the. Um, the etymology of the term or, or the the origin and we should probably say that that will be a theme in the podcast even when we come to the ranted arguments back and forth indeed but the uncertainty of so much of this because oh absolutely not only in terms of the etymology that we'll look at now but even in the saint herself um historical figure versus um the mythological figures mm. so as we go through the podcast what we say is based on Kind of the folk traditions that we've accumulated here in the archive, the secondary reading that we've done. But even as you, if anyone who's interested goes digging, you'll kind of come to see that there's so little authoritative information, really, in terms of because you've got you've got Bridget's lives, which we'll look at, but there's nothing rooted in contemporary accounts in any way. Yeah. So what we say is based on re- our kind of our reading and our research, but there's no definitive answer sometimes in this kind of topic. No, I think it depends as well though on the kind of the perspective you're using to absorb this information mm. or not to analyse it or something. Yeah, you're totally correct in that there's no the historic information regarding the saint, there's an extreme kind of paucity of material in that mm. regard. There are the lives of, you know, Vita Brigate and so on that we'll talk about later, mm. which were written 
um, after the fact in, in an attempt to kind of rationalize it within the framework of a Christian theology. Um, but that's not to say that it doesn't undermine even the symbolic expression that can be extremely powerful in a, in a I think, in maybe in a more personal sense and in a communal sense, in looking at, at the symbolism of the saint um, and in what she represents and how it's expressed. And there's a huge amount of material in that regard mm-hmm. that we can draw from the mythological corpus of material in Ireland, the early literature, and through looking at comparative um, um, studies or expressions of mythology in on in the European continent and again further afield into the Indo-European kind of tra- tradition as well. Yeah. So it takes us in a different direction. So so even though some of the material that we might describe might be coming more from that that um, supernatural vein, mm-hmm. that's not to say that it, it's not worthwhile and powerful. In its, no, in no, some, absolutely. Some it's, well. it's worth looking at, but just to kind of um, Heavy foreground our, our material. Before we move into wild wild and baseless speculation. Yes, exactly. Basically. So, yeah, we're covered. Disclaimer. Um, but what do I have to... So, uh, Imbolc. Yes. Imbolc is... The, so there's some disagreement over the name uh, of the festival or, or what it comes from. The, the most likely of origins would seem to be from the early Irish if Moloch, literally meaning in the belly, referring to pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And there was another reference to uh, e-milk, meaning use milk or lactation. Um, was that how Hogan used that, didn't he? Lactation. He, he, he used that, yeah. Um, now, I think I could be wrong here, but there was there's a, a ninth century glossary, Sanus Cormac. That's the first reference to breed, to Brigid, as a, as a pre-Christian goddess. It's an old, it's a glossary of um, thousands of words and terms and their meanings in, 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 in Irish and Old Irish, basically. Which is very useful today, I suppose, to kind of plot the trajectory of some of these these terms and customs and so on. Um, but yeah, so Dahi referred to this this kind of there's a confusion around the name basically. There was another account that I read which suggested that it might it might relate to to an early Irish kind of uh, uh, form that that uh, that referred to the idea of, of um, purification. Mm-hmm. And the word February, um, February that root Februa I think has has that meaning as as its at its core as that means to purify as well. Um, but either way, I suppose there was this this the festival at this time is related to the idea of, of fertility and so on. It's one of these quarter day. Um, kind of marks the beginning of spring, doesn't it? In yeah, the agricultural year. The agricultural year, the production of food. Um, so again, it has kind of there's a promise in the air. There's the idea of regeneration and growth, pregnancy, the feminine fertility, the world of becoming, this sort of stuff. And Breed as the as a figure is attached to that festival in the pre-Christian context. We have the saint, the historic saint you're mentioning, but there's also like I mentioned in, in, in Cormac's glossary from the 9th century, there's a reference to uh, the pre-Christian deity Breed, Brigid. And she has, she's one of three sisters. She's a triplicate goddess, mm-hmm. which is common in, 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 the, in the, the Catholic tradition as well, that deities are, are, are triplicate, or in the Indo-European tradition even. Um, she has two sisters called Breed and Breed. So there's, Wouldn't there's that three be very them. difficult for Christmas with the old presents? It could be. I would see uh, carnage unfolding, yeah. Um, and they're the daughter of the Daija, the Dadji, the good god, mm-hmm. Daija Olahar, the, the good god, all the father the of the two the, the, the people of the goddess Danu, the people of the goddess Danu, who are, who are the mythic race of deities who inhabited Ireland before um, humans came. But isn't this what's confusing me in the literature nonsense moving swiftly <laughs> forward yes no it is it's, it can be it's a bit of a tangle because web. you've got Brigitte mm-hmm. who I'll call Brigitte just for the sake of trying to that's yeah okay discern Brigitte from Brigitte oh okay um, and then you've got Brigantia yeah so Brigantia now is the deity who was known to this tribe of the Brigantes in central Britain yeah so is it safe to say although we say Brigitte in Ireland mm-hmm. was a member of the Tuatha Dé Danann mm-hmm. are we assuming 
that this tribe, which we know or are told from central Britain, came and settled in southeast Ireland. In Leinster, yeah. That their Brigantia became our Brigid goddess and was made to be a daughter of the Tuatha de Danann, so that it's an kind of a, a European tradition mm-hmm. made local in Ireland by making her uh, a daughter of the Tuatha de Danann. Yeah, but it's been rationalised in some way in, in that framework, it seems. It's hard to say because I suppose there's such a gap between um, the arrival of that tribe, that invasion that into, into Leinster, I think around the first century mm. AD, and then the later... See, the, the difficulty all the time when, when we're examining the mythological corpus in Irish tradition is that we're viewing it like in the Icelandic tradition. It's the same the same problem. Where it's a miracle that this stuff survived at all. Mm. Um, but we have you have Christian scholars. Yes. And, and, and the scribal tradition, the written word as Beige describes in, in, and, and in the, historic, the, the historic account of the English peoples, the Anglo-Saxon peoples, describes the arrival of the written word. But you, re- you realise it as, as it's a Christian vehicle. The written, yeah. I mean, it's there was a taboo against... It's for us. Like 100%. What we see now is the, not... There was a taboo against, against writing in, in the pre-Christian context mm. in the Irish tradition. And, and there was a... Um, a, a focus on the on the spoken yeah. basically, and, and they're all the the poets and the lawgivers as as that kind of one of the, the highest office um, uh, among the people say. But it was a spoken an oral tradition, which is still of high artistry and an elite tradition, but an oral tradition. So there's a kind of gap, and the material that we read, I suppose, it's hard to stitch immediate lines. But you see, mm. um, I suppose, a reemergence or resurgence of common themes. So. So yes, in in the in the pantheon in Irish tradition we have the likes of the Daija, uh, and then Brigid, Brigid, and Brigid, the three daughters who are associated with smithcraft, protection of poets, protection of pregnant women, childbirth, livestock, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, her, he's attached to the festival Imbolc, which is one of the quarterday festivals which has fertility and propagation and the arrival of spring and food production as its central focus. Mm-hmm. There is then so as we move. I suppose further we leave Ireland and go back in time say there's the tribe the Brigantes who settle around the, the, the around Yorkshire and the Pennine kind of hills and so on in England and um, they're thought to have spread the cult to Ireland with an invasion into Leinster in the first century AD yes. and they had this deity Brigantia and there are, there are shrines to Brigantia in Britain the river Brant in Wales is named after her. the river Brent in England is named after her but anywhere you see Bree or, um, or Bray, or Bray, Bray in Scotland, the, ter- the term for a hill, yeah. Bree, the term for a hill around, a height, um, and the idea of her name meaning high, her highness, mm. lofty one, exalted one. That's where it comes from. And That's so remarkable. It's incredible, it gets, and it gets better, right? it, gets, it gets more and more, it's amazing, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So you have this material of, of um, the, the idea of the, of the deity Brigantia, who the Romans associate with Minerva, mm. uh, Caesar equates her with Minerva, and this, there's this process called Interpretatio Romana, where... The Romans uh, look at the equivalent, the comparative gods of their, say, their Anglo-Saxon neighbours or Celts or whatever, and they say, "Oh, uh, um, their brigade is our Minerva." She, she, and, and so on and so on. Okay. Or you have Interpretatio Germanica, which is where even the 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 uh, like the days of the week in in tradition now are named after the German gods: Thursday, oh, yes. Fre- Friday, Frey, and so on and so on. Um, so. You have, I suppose, a reinterpretation of these kind of deities as, as from from these the differing kind of European peoples, basically. Um, her name has been she's she's named after um, I think there's Brigantio in in it was a former name of a town a town in Western Austria, a town in Hungary, uh, and in France as well. All bear this the name of this deity Brigantia as as a kind of a root or whatever. But when we move even further afield from continental Europe, and this is her for me, it's it's to get particularly. Um, uh, uh, well, extremely interesting, fascinating, really, is that 
take the, the meaning of the word breed, brigade. It means exalted one. It mm. means high, her highness, lofty one. It's an epithet to a goddess, basically. But as far as far, far afield in the Rig Vedas, which are one of the kind of the, the canonical scriptures of the Hindu religion, which were composed about three and a half thousand years ago, uh, ten books of of these hymns, um, beautiful, beautiful hymns to these different deities, basically. There is an exact uh, cognate term, uh, Burhati, which seems to have come from a proto-Indo-European term, as we in a dictionary of, or an encyclopedia of the Indo-European culture. Just sitting around reading the old encyclopedia, Johnny. Yes, um, and it refer- and it said it said proto-Indo-European status assured. That was hilarious. It's a stamp, uh, PIE status assured. Um, it refers to this deity, Burhati, right? But there, there's in the poetry addressed in particular to a goddess at the dawn whose name is Ushas, which is where we forget Eos, uh, um, uh, the Greek goddess at the dawn, or Aurora in, in the Roman tradition, which is even where the word East comes from, apparently as, as a root in the Indo-European languages, or Easter, or Ostra, yeah, that, that deity, whatever. This, this figure, Ushas, of the dawn, is referred to in the Vedic scriptures as Burhati, as an epithet, like calling her Her Highness, Lofty One, basically. So there seems, again, while, while these threads sometimes disappear, there are, there's a resurgence that seems common and primeval, or a primordial mm. link among the Celtic peoples, the Slavic peoples, the Baltic peoples, the Anglo-Saxon peoples, or the Saxon peoples, or whatever, mm. going all the way through the Indo-European kind of um, uh, uh, branches that, that links back to this common root that finds expression that we can look at in the Vedic scriptures even. Um, where this goddess of the dawn is referenced. I was in the bus the other night going home reading these Vedic hymns to, to the goddess of the dawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was amazing, it was for this podcast. And it, it was, it was, I found in, in the Sanskrit this reference to this woman, Barhati. And it was the most amazing thing to see it written there three and a half thousand years ago. It was incredible. And did you turn to your neighbour and no, say, actually, guess what I've just discovered? Actually, I felt kind of slightly pathetic in a way because I was so excited by by the fact of of seeing a kind of a, a link back into this primeval or primordial kind of um, I don't know root or shared root of our of our cultural inheritance, whatever, while on a stuffed, packed bus in going through the city traffic and all its disorders. Oh, your hellscape that you don't like. Well, so at least, but I felt so glad even to know that. Well, even if these things are, you know, hidden in the dirt as it were or unknown or not spoken of or they seem broken if we tap into them mm. if we if we, we explore what's there those golden threads are still running there's still living waters running through them mm. and there's great um sustenance to be derived from that i think it's true but I, what just pick. amazes me is how much you can learn about our history and the kind of the movement of people in language and in customs incredible. and in traditions. Absolutely incredible. You, know, you can, can look I... at trading routes and you can look oh, at yeah. the historical, but actually there's so much in just the... The symbolic. The, the, the symbolic, the etymology. It's incredible. At the end of this podcast, there's a poem which I'd like to read because we're talking about what Bridget means to us. Oh, yes. And I was struck, this is from the Irish tradition, but I was struck by the, the similarity with this, this Vedic hymn. This is from the first book of the Rig Vedas, Hymn 123, called mm. The Dawn. And with your permission, Claire, I should like to read it. What now? Yes. Uh, instead of at the end? Oh yes, this one. But I have another little thing, at, at, a little poem in this book. Oh, perfect. But this on. is this is where I found this You're term. Not some dictator, you do what you like. Oh, look, listen to that. She's not some dictator. I live in fear <laughs> and dread. I know. So this is this is this this poem, the dawn, right? And this is where, in the Sanskrit, you can see this reference to to lofty one, exalted one, and it's that term for the goddess of the dawn. That seems to be the root from where we get this term, brigade, breed, 
Bridget, which we venerate today as a saint, and who was, is this um, pre-Christian deity. So there's a link to, to this idea of, of dawn and so on. So this is this, this Vedic hymn, three and a half thousand years old. And the Daxina's broad chariot has, has been harnessed. This car of the gods immortal have ascended. Fain to bring light to homes of men, the noble and active goddess hath emerged from darkness. She before all the living world hath wakened, the lofty one who wins and gathers treasure. Revived and ever young on high she glances, dawn hath come first unto our morning worship. If dawn thou goddess nobly born, thou dealest fortune this day to all the race of mortals. May Sabitar the god, friend of the homestead, declare before the sun that we are sinless. Showing her wanted form each day that passeth, spreading the light she visiteth each dwelling. Eager for conquest, with bright sheen she cometh, her portion is the best of goodly treasures. Obedient to the, to the reign of law eternal, give us each thought that more and more shall bless us. Shine thou on us today, dawn, swift to listen, with us be riches, with chiefs who worship. It's amazing, it's a kind of, there's, there's more there if anyone wants to read it online. Hymn 123 in book one of the, of the Rig Veda. Um, but that, that this she before all the living world hath wakened, the lofty one who wins and gathers treasure. In, in the Sanskrit, that lofty one is the root from whence we get breed, brigad. So she, you can trace her back from oh. not just the Pennine Hills in Yorkshire and towns in Austria and Hungary and so on, or rivers in Ireland and Wales and so on, but all the way back to this, again, the, the, the uh, well, the origins of, or the earlier roots of Indo-European tradition. So a, uh, she stretches from India to Ireland, basically, and links us in this kind of primeval, primordial uh, fashion mm. with our oldest conditions of culture. It's... It pays to know your history, doesn't it? Because if you read the lofty one without any context, you, you read it as a dry line. Of course, of course, but yeah. But you, you can, if you, you just are not aware, once you've got the key, you just unlock the exactly. entire picture, yeah, yeah. don't you? And so, I mean, even for, for someone to, to look at, I don't know, even, I mean, with the, with the, despite even in a sense, the collapse of formal religious tradition in this country, the collapse of the, of the Catholic Church, I think it's fair to say, in many ways, for young people at least, um, figures like, like Breed or Brigid, they're still worshipped often by, by many people in an apocryphal way or even new age kind of sorts or, or um, pagan, you know, people with those kind of inclinations or whatever. She, she kind of transcends some of the more formal expressions, you know what yes. I mean? Uh, and there's a great love for her and even that reference of, you know, she who visits every house. Mm. Like there's, there's no other saint, as Chris was saying, who, who does that, who, who visits each and every house, as, as Bridget is, is said to have done. That's true. She does. Um, she wins out over Patrick in many ways, which we'll come to look at. Um, in terms of reverence and kind of popularity, uh, I have been ranting there about, but I hope that makes sense to people that that, that there's the the kind of the, the saint, the deity, um, that the the saint replacing and usurping the role of the deity, mm-hmm. uh, which herself um, seems to have roots and expressions associated with the goddess of the dawn and 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 uh, illuminating knowledge and propagation and renewal and so on that stretches all the way from from Ireland to to India. That's what we're dealing with or whatever and if you tap into these older sources and look at the comparative sources in a personal sense not even in a strict kind of definitive academic historical sense but in a personal sense in a symbolic sense there's great um yeah like i said there are living waters therein to draw sustenance from i think and it's worth doing so absolutely. yes read the vedic hymns on the bus absolutely um, and if you see johnny reading them just don't deny him please oh no i'd be happy to <laughs> say hello and um, so i don't know that's that's the the festival in book, the quarter day mm-hmm. tradition, the saint, the deity, and so on. Kind of the necessary um, foundation that I we think need to build so. on. I hope now. that makes sense anyway, yeah. But um, but I suppose we should maybe look at the 5th century and the historic 
figure. Mm-hmm. Do you want to look at the, the yeah. signs? Give Shall us we? The, they give us the actual the facts, Claire. The facts, and there are very few facts. Prove any um, of the facts. What really intrigued me when we began researching this was we have a wonderful specialist library here that has a section on saints um, and many titles on St. Bridget herself, which you're always kind of welcome to come in and, and view. But did you know that there are actually 12 plus saints called Bridget? Um, I heard that, but I know nothing. As long as there are no follow-up. Questions. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, um, I heard there are many saints. Yes, amazed me. So some of them I'll just read out. Um, they've just now some have been named as a Bridget of Shankill, County Kilkenny, um, Bridget of Rathbride, Bridget of Mylifa, County Kildare, Bridget of Fenish Island, County Clare, Bridget of Coolcor, County Longford, um, Bridget of Aharney, County Kilkenny. Then you've just got those who are designated as Breach, daughter of Lenin, Breach, daughter of Morahu, Breach, daughter of E, and Bridge War of Delgany. It's Delgany, and that's where I'm from. Huzzah! Well, just down the road. That's my side of the world. Is it? Yes, indeed. Oh, well, thank you for correcting me. Do you there have your own? Politely. Do you have your own breed? And um, we have many. Well, we have actually. No, that's just a <laughs> All right, is this the uh, phone we, for 2019, Johnny? No, no, no such thing. I think Donegal is, is full of saints. Well, God me. knows we're putting up with you, yes. Mm, indeed. Right. So, but the main, um, so there are numerous um, saints, or there were designated as Breach, but many are kind of classed as being subject to Breach of Kildare. Yeah, I was going to ask a question there. Where, where, from whence these breeds? Yes. So what's interesting and what I understand from my reading is that they are localizations of, um, interestingly, either the goddess that we were speaking about mm. herself or that they have taken the kind of our St. Bridget of Kildare and become local versions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite, mm. Now, again, I'm very sketchy on this whole period when they're adopting localizations of saints. But it's that idea, I think, of taking what can be a, a greater idea and making it local and local. personal to your own in order to make it um, resonate with your... A local you know, saint for Christians. local people. Exactly. Do, does the church have formal records of these saints or is in the, the early Christian church in Ireland? Or um, how were they question. recognized or how are they... How are they from what sources even give accounts of, of them? I feel like I'm being cross-examined. Here, Sorry, Johnny. no, no, I'm just... No, no. And I'm, that's a I'm good question. Because I just... I don't know. I don't know. I knew that there was a number of them, but... For example, I don't give you follow-up questions, Johnny. Oh um, I don't actually know um, whether there are official church records. I didn't, you know, I work nine to five, Johnny. No, no, I didn't. I didn't mean like you know, even uh, some sort of, I don't know, stamp from as in as a, a holy stamp from um, the Vatican Times thing. But what, where, but from where did they ar- arise? Like what, what, what sources could have mentioned? Oh, breed daughter of such and such from Delgany or something like that. And um, well, in the book I read from the library was kind of the um, Saints of Ireland. There were three large volumes, so they've obviously been taking it them from some I wonder, I wonder how it happened or um, where it happened. We, we could check that out. Um, Sorry, I'm not trying to in- interrogate there. No, no, that's fine. It was a genuine... Jeez, uh, got to be on my toes this time. Not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but again, that's just what kind of really threw me at the beginning, um, that there were so many saints. It's like the Palladius, the two Patricks or something. Exactly, yeah, yeah, very much so. Kind of, It has those um, undertones. But St. Bridget of Kildare is the one we're primarily focused on today. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that, or at least we have reason to believe that she lived between 455 AD to 525. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is based on kind of the lives that were written later. But again, as we were saying at the beginning, the lives, kind of these manuscript biographies of her, they came much later than her lived experience. So the first mm-hmm. one was written over a century after she died. 
And what you have to remember about lives from what I've been reading is that they're not necessarily biographies in the traditional sense that we would know them now. They're not Johnny was born in, you know, 19 whatever, um, grew up here, mother was, father was, um, went to school here. It's not about the hard facts. It's more about the way they lived. Mm. Um, as in kind of broader sweeps and the miracles that they kind of um, perpetuated and the the environment that they lived in. And what is also interesting is that each life has an agenda. Like you were mm-hmm. saying earlier, every writer is coming at it with a specific focus and a specific aim. And in some of these, we know that there were, there's a wonderful book by um, Noel Kassan. A fantastic book. A fantastic yeah. book. I just really enjoyed reading it. And he did a lot of research in here, such he a gentleman. Did. Um, actually, when I first started, he was in every day for many, many months. For many years. Yeah, he's in. just yeah. such gent. And it's called St. Bridget of Kildare, Life, Legend and Cult mm. by... Um, Four Courts, is it? Four Courts Press. And it came out it's, last year. It is a fantastic book. It really he is worth getting. He just goes yeah. through the folklore. He goes through the, the legend, the biography, the hagiography, and um, the lives, you name it. So it's well worth dipping into. Mm. But he um, kind of lays out these kind of the the more well-known lives I suppose and I might just kind of point them out to you mm. if that's all right so we have the life of cogitosis from am I pronouncing that right cogitosis cogitosis <laughs> so the life of cogitosis um from 650 AD so as you can see immediately if Bridget died we're told in 525 AD that's a significant period of time and overlap before this life is written and he was a cleric at Kildare then you've got the Latin life known as the Vita Prima. Then you've got um, an, kind of an anonymous Latin version, the mm. Beho Brigia. You've got a fourth one, when was that written? Circa 829 AD by Donatus. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I don't know. I think so. Excellent. I assume so. I'm going to say yes. Then you've got a fifth one, a long prose life in Latin written in the 1130s by the English monk Lawrence, um, prior mm. of durham then you've got one in latin again in the 12th century vita prima and then you've got a seventh anonymous one in middle irish from between they say um 19 or 900 ad and 1200 the Mm. life in the form of a homily with which is an abridged translation of vita prima and then he goes on to speak about some more minor derivative lives but all of these are written with agendas in mind Mm. namely either to promote the moral conversion of um, the lay people and heathen scum. Kind of the heathen well not scum Johnny Harsh um, the, the lay people who are kind of trying to, saving their souls or yes. as well as that to promote the whole idea of Bridget as um, a prime a primary saint because what, when you read more and more you kind of get this feeling that there was this huge competition at, the, at a certain period where it could have gone either way between Patrick and Bridget. Mm. Such was the power of their influence and that Armagh was really fighting for Patrick to be mm-hmm. kind of head saint, whereas those in Kildare and the south of Ireland and Leinster were really fighting for Bridget's case. But from the 8th century onwards, Patrick won out and he became the patron saint of Ireland. It's weird. Why? Because there's so much more about Bridget in tradition. Is Patrick yeah. isn't, he doesn't, he doesn't really... Um... Not compared to Bridget, no, no like in and terms of history and kind of those ancient roots. But it's interesting, I don't know. They're trying to make her a saint in these texts. They're trying to kind of set up her, I don't know, CV, essentially, mm, of miracles. Exactly. And, and It's a bit like a political campaign, if yeah, you think yeah, about yeah. it. It's kind of trying to give this backstory of um, 
virtue and charity mm. and kind of her her noble roots which is where lots of the legends come from mm. still today um but again bizarre. these these lives um they can't be taken at face value there there's always they're always colored by the purpose for which they're written and again there's so little historical actual detail in them mm. as to who she was we know that she artists were told that she was born out of wedlock to a man kind of a lord called Dua mm. and that her mother we are told was a slave called is it Bruxia? yeah I think so yeah. and that she would have grown up as kind of quite a poor figure and um, tending cattle um churning kind of undertaking the work of women in that kind of traditional society um in early Ireland doesn't it kind of fit with the whole Christian ethos in a way as well mm. she was so poor and and there's another I mean the the idea of her her father Duach meaning dark or gloomy or whatever um, references even to the the idea of the daughter of the night and the dawn of the night mm. just as a symbolic thing but oh, that's interesting um, and she was born on the threshold of, the, of she wasn't born inside or outside that's true that her mother gave birth, mother on gave the birth threshold yeah. of a door delivering milk to a druid or something um, and her house is on fire yes always on fire but again you have to wonder like these are the stories that come up in the lives and people can't come near it or something yeah so they're taking flame, these always. kind of pagan motifs and mm. then kind of having christian ideas as well mm-hmm. so it's really this kind of little synthesis yeah, syncretism fascin- or whatever yeah fascinating when you well i, I haven't read them on the bus and um, <laughs> but i do have them by my bedside so i will read the lives <laughs> as we go through them yes indeed but um it's so interesting that they're kind of taking the best bits of the kind of ideas that were in international hagiographies mm. you know of where she hangs clothes on a sunbeam yeah that's a very old idea yeah. in, in european tradition um and then kind of the more paganistic ideas that they've kind of adopted but trying to put a spin on them so really even kind of and she curious. established the, the first monastery in ireland's first monastery mm. in kildare uh kildara the church of the oak tree and isn't this the idea that that the the woman who christianized her tribe um, from Louth, she was from Louth, whatever they think, that she Christianized her tribe and she took the name, Brigitte, she took the name of the goddess mm-hmm. and she kind of usurped or or absorbed the role of the goddess then. And even the idea of the kind of the Kildara, the other church of the oak tree, uh, uh, the role of the oak in tradition suggesting that uh, that the monastery that was established there was taking over from a pre-Christian, a pagan site. Yes. And so so the saint lives on, or sorry, the, the, the goddess lives on in the saint in a way. I would um, agree with that. And there was a, a flame, a perpetual flame that was lit. Oh, you were telling me about this. This is very interesting. Yeah, it's weird that there's the idea that it was tend. It could only be tended by women. Um, men couldn't go near it. Um, and it was it was lit from the time of Bridget. And there were 20 uh, nuns altogether, and, and including the saint, um, who tended to this flame. But after Bridget died, they didn't replace her. So there were just 19 of them tending this flame. And then when it became when it came to the twentieth night, they'd say it's your it's your turn tonight, Bridget, and they'd leave the fire there. But it would never go out. It would it was always um, kept going. Kept going. And then I think eventually um, King Henry VIII or some reformers um, they had it extinguished anyway, basically. But it was relit in 1993 or nineteen ninety four down in Kildare. It's still lighting now. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Um, uh, Gerald of Wales, Gerald Geraldus Cambrensis goes on about it. In I his... think it's pronounced no. Oh God! <laughs> well, I mean, you asked. <sighs> this is an amazing book, the history and topography of Ireland, and poor Geraldus gets he gets a hard time. And well, he I mean, well, you sympathise with that, John? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
Um, so he has a piece in here where he talks about um, he talks about crazy things, but uh, but one he gives account of Kildare and he says various miracles in Kildare, and first about the fire that never goes out and whose ashes do not increase. And here we go. It says in Kildare and Leinster, which the glorious Brid Bridget has made famous, there are many miracles worthy of being remembered. And the first of them that occurs to one is the fire of Bridget, which they say is inextinguishable. It is not that it is, strictly speaking, inextinguishable, but that the nuns and holy women have so carefully and diligently kept and fed it with enough material that through all the years from the time of the Virgin Saint until now, it has never been extinguished. And although such an amount of wood over such a long time has been burnt there, nevertheless, the ashes have never increased. And then it says, although in the time of Bridget there were 20 servants of the Lord here, Bridget herself being the 20th, only 19 have ever been here after her death until now, and the number have, has never increased. They all, however, take their turns, one each night, in guarding the fire. When the 20th night comes, the 19th nun puts the logs beside the fire and says, Bridget, guard your fire, this is your night. And in this way, the fire is left there, and in the morning, the wood, as usual, has been burnt, and the fire is still alight. And then, note here, the hedge around the fire that no man may cross. The fire is surrounded by a hedge, which is circular and made of withies. Which no, and which no male may cross. And if by chance one does dare to enter, and some rash people have at times tried it, he does not escape the divine vengeance. Only women are allowed to blow the fire, and then not with the breath of their mouths, but only with bellows or winnowing forks. Moreover, because of a curse of the saint, goats never have young there. Interesting. Mm. Uh, there are very fine plains hereabouts, which are called Bridges Pastures. Okay, it goes on about the curve of Kildare around it. But the fire, and I suppose the women who tend it, and the idea that and divine vengeance divine vengeance yes. which is very important uh, but the idea that it's a kind of it's it's like a separate um male and females are kind of it's a, an exclusive a separate thing as a divine order basically mm. that can't be interrupted or whatever and it's interesting just you can remind me on that point um one of the miracles that we read about and we kind of spoke about it the mortification oh, element yeah, yeah. yesterday um you, what you read was slightly different to mine because i read that when St. Bridget was younger, before she became who she would inevitably become, um, her father wanted her to be married. Mm. And she was so committed to living a life, but she had been Christianized um, at this stage and wanted to give her life to God. So she kind of were told, gouged out an eye so as to make nice. herself unattractive mm -hmm. to potential suitors. And once <laughs> That's her pretty father, extreme. That I'll is pretty it. extreme now. Yep. Um, but having done that, her father kind of agreed, okay, I... You are indeed committed. Okay, okay, chill. So off you go um, to take holy orders. But then miraculously, her sight was um, given Restored. back. Hmm. It's true. Yeah, I think I read this, uh, that she prayed for her beauty to go away or something mm. to that effect. And then when she became a saint later, it came back, oh. basically. Um, and she would have actually, she became, um, she took kind of what they call the veil quite early because in what I was reading, the in Ireland at that time in Noel Cassan's book, Again, he gives a wonderful overview that women would have taken it between the ages of 15 and 25, hmm. which is very young to make mm -hmm. those big life decisions. Yep. Um, so she would have, kind of what they call, again, taken the veil and taken holy orders quite early on in life mm. and given her life to charity and those good causes. Mm -hmm. um, should we move towards aspects of, of folk tradition? Yes. Or is there any other element of the, of the early Christian stuff that you wanted to look at or... Um, I think I'm hoping that that will give people a flavour that there's far more at the beginning that they should look at and that it's not all just the crosses and the mantles and... Oh, yeah, the, that is a good point. You know, yeah. that we're kind of 
we grow up with and assume that that is all. Yeah. But actually, when you look into Bridget, you, you travel much further back. It's, it's astounding. Yeah. Um, so yes, let's do um, folk tradition. It's what it's our bread and butter. Journey. Yes, it is. We, yes, yes, indeed. Um, you were mentioning yesterday a point I hadn't thought of, and we figured it should go at the start of this particular bit about townlands mm. and names of places in the landscape where yes where features. Bridget appears now this is where Bridget actually beats out St Patrick hands down in the na- number of townlands that she has associated with her not only in Ireland and um, even I did a quick search there's a wonderful website called loganium.ie which is basically the Irish word for place name and it documents the place names and townlands, baronies, counties of Ireland. And if you were to look for something with, say, Kilbride, there are, how many did I count? 35 townlands hmm. named Kilbride. And then various kind of variations of that, Kilbreedy, you might find six. And when I looked into holy wells, you've got 116 holy wells named after her. You've got... Hmm. 113 Roman Catholic churches of which she's a patron you've got 14 Church of Ireland churches and that's just in Ireland and before you even start looking at schools and um, I went to a primary school which was Scalregia and hmm. um, you've got GA clubs I think Bridget's in Dublin I think mm-hmm. where did I read that so she appears in the most kind of ordinary places in a way where you just kind of write these on envelopes every day when you're sending it to addresses you know mm. Kilbride Kilbreedy mm-hmm. but it's actually when you see bride, when you see brew, when you see brie. Biddy, Bridget, Biddy. Yeah. But there's so many people, have been, a generation's been named after her because exactly. of the adoration and which is, and, and the, the whole nickname from Wirren the Gael, the, mm. the, the, the Mary of the Irish. I mean, she is one of the, the a patroness of this island or the or people or whatever. Mm. But um, this is Patrick, Bridget and Colin Kill. But yeah, she, she features so much more, I mm. think, in the psyche and minds of Irish people than in, in a national way, I think. Um, I think she, she transcends the role of some of those, of Patrick and Colm Kill. Absolutely. Did I you hear so. the story about her, her and Colm Kill walking in the field? I thought you were going to say walking into a bar there. No, they're walking into a bar. No such thing. <laughs> um, they're, they're walking through a field and Colm Kill, is, he says something, they're walking over these potato ridges or drills or something. And he says something like, I'm so pious, uh, I never, my God comes to mind to me every other potato drill that I walk over as they walk in this field. And Bridget's like, hmm, God never leaves my mind. Oh, so Colin, Colin Kill didn't quite make the cut there I think he's pretty fuming and St Brendan the navigator mm-hmm. when he's out at sea uh, navigating two whales are, are having a, they're having a big fight and the smaller whale is about to be killed and destroyed and it calls out to Bridget oh. uh, to help at which point the big whale goes away and it's saved but Brendan is fuming because it's like why did he call it to Bridget and not me this yeah. little whale but it's because Bridget was known as more the more uh, powerful saint basically yeah. so and men have complexes about those things they have little chips in their shoulders they do. little they teeny do. tiny chips um <laughs> but one of the things i should say as well is that um i was just amazed by not only in terms of townlands here mm. but just for the sake of completeness to let people know to actually maybe look around if you live in a celtic nation and um, with those early roots or if you live in areas where there were heavy irish populations in those kind of industrial areas and whether it's Scotland or Britain or America, even mm. as far afield as Australia and New Zealand, Canada, you might be surprised. Um, I found those in Spain, Scandinavia, um, the United States, Canada, Which Australia. Townlands. Really? yeah, crazy just the yeah, mentions amazing. that they have. New Zealand, Austria, Germany, France, Belgium, Scotland, Wales, mm. Switzerland and Italy. Um, mm. Which townlands, churches dedicated to her. Um, and you see that like when we kind of travel anywhere mm. i'm always surprised by 
the number of Irish saints or names that mm-hmm. you come across who've been there before you. And Bridget was very much isn't, the isn't same. her skull in um, something wrong? It's somewhere in Europe, France or something like that. Her it's sp- Portugal. Or is, is it yeah, Portugal? Is that it? Yeah. I think so. There was there was a certain there's a huge level of controversy as to what relics exist where I won't even get into it. Mm. But bits of her, God love her, have been claimed around here, there, and everywhere. for every um, area mm-hmm. in Europe. Yeah. Um, so folk tradition, Johnny. Sorry. Yes. Okay. So, um, well, we should start with. Well, let's go to the connection between Saint Bridget and cattle. She travels yes. around with a supernatural cow, another world cow, mm-hmm. um, which has a certain resonance with the Vedic tradition. I'll just poke that in there again. Okay. Um, and the goddess of the dawn and so on. But there's a, a piece here which I particularly enjoy um, from Peggy McMahon from West Clare is collected by Jim Carroll and it describes a devotion of her father in particular to St. Bridget. You mentioned 160, 116 or something, Holy Wells. Mm-hmm. But this is the, the, the patron saint and, and I suppose it gives a certain flavour of the devotion held towards her and her visiting of Holy Wells and, and so on. My father went to St. Bridget's well all his life. He never ever missed a spot and he brought me then and he used to, he was supposed to see the fish in the morning and he used to see the fish. Oh, I, I had great, I have said great faith in Saint Bridget. She's the patron saint of, uh, she's patron saint of, of cattle show, Saint Bridget, because she did love cattle. Tradition tells us that. Tradition tells us that this is the uh, so her her love of cattle, the idea that will describe so she travels around the country with her with her her cow, mm-hmm. um, providing milk and so on. But because she was said to be so generous that she would often. But that's one of the kind of the very early stories about her, isn't it? That she would do her mother's work, tending the cattle, milking the cows, um, churning the butter, and that she was often found to be giving it away to the poor and the mm. needy. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, when because she was kind of in this slave environment, um, when she came with the others to offer up what they'd kind of made for the day, miraculously oh, it would be replenished yeah, 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 because okay. she was so good. Um, so yeah, that's her and her cattle, but the, the link is always there. Um, I suppose, let's see, I'm trying to think of what way, I mean, everybody knows about the crosses, or actually maybe they don't, but we'll start maybe with the idea of, of visitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can do. Um, and like in the Vedic Kimya, this, this idea of the, the, you know, the, the goddess that visits, that shines upon every house, on every face, that visits everyone or whatever. But also in Irish tradition, uh, and as Chris was saying, before we started recording this, we were chatting about the topic, no other saint that I can think of at least visits every house. On the night of her feast, mm. January the 31st, she travels across the country and she visits and blesses every house. house yeah. uh, and so there were effigies and emblems and items, tokens left out for her and to her and so on. And But she, she'd bless the, the place, basically. And should we just say, um, yeah. the interesting point there of that in Celtic tradition, we always have to remember that the new day begins with sunset and mm-hmm. not necessarily sunrise. Yes. So you'll see, we've spoken about this in May Day as well, and it's just good to remember that St. Bridget's Eve, really like May Eve, is where the magic happens, so yeah. to speak, because that's where the power and influence is. It's the night. Um, sundown. The, the sundown. The evening before. That's yeah. why in the same sense that we celebrate on October 31st, that night is Halloween. Exactly. Um, and so on. But um, this is an account uh, from between Limerick and County Cork from the folklore collection here. And it says, On the eve of St. Bridget, a sheaf of rushes was placed in the doorstep or flagstone of the door, on the outside of which St. Bridget would kneel when she and St. Bridget's cow visited each house during the night. St. Bridget would kneel on the rushes and pray that God might bless the house and its occupants. 
Also, it was a custom to tie the St. Bridget's ribbon on the latch of the door outside, and this also she blessed when she blessed the house, the people in it, and especially the dairy and cattle. No house was locked on the night of St. Bridget's Eve, but the door was kept on the latch. When St. Bridget came along, she drove with her a white cow, which was known as St. Bridget's cow, but had a special name in Irish. So, I suppose the overall... What was the name in Irish, Johnny? Um, in brackets, it says here, forgotten by the narrator. Oh, that's not good enough. No, it's not good enough, is it? But sure, we'll struggle about mm. on because we have to get on with these things, because you're a professional, it's <laughs> um, So, I suppose, I mean, it's quite a striking image, and to see the saint driving her white cow before her, mm. going through all, 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 through, all through the country and visiting every house. Um, and I suppose, as part of that, maybe it would leave us on, there's this reference to the custom to tying, tying the ribbon on the latch of the door, mm. but the idea that women would often leave a mantle or a piece of cloth out. Mm. Um, we still do that. In Donegal, do you? Yeah, and yeah. even myself and the girls in our house, as you know, I always undertake a focus group. Mm-hmm. Um, we Prior. started doing it in Dublin because we're all country kind of women. Pumpkins, so, sorry. Mm-hmm. See this now, folks? This is what I have to No, no, with. please, um, I have the greatest respect for Yes, yes. Whatever it is or whatever. <laughs> But yeah, Slow down, so Claire. I can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> your regional accent or whatever it is. So, um, no, we've started doing it um, in Dublin. It's just important. Because, it's yeah, important and do. like part of us, we just felt like it was so much a part of our childhood mm. to make rushes mm-hmm. um, or to make crosses and to leave out the Brathag region. Mm. Um, now, we didn't have Biddy Boys, as we'll kind of touch on. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that was common in the north of Ireland. But um, it was a huge part of our childhood, these really exciting days where we got to work with kind of our grandparents and yeah. in schools with our friends we'd be allowed over the wall there was a kind of a, a field beside our school which incidentally was named after um saint bridget hmm. and it was kind of the one day we were kind of allowed to climb over and you'd have to kind of pull the rushes rather than cut them oh okay. and then we were allowed to kind of bring them in the next day and make crosses and you might make them at home but um, ah, that's it was, beautiful it yeah. was. you and have like, to do these things part of us just thought it's kind of nice to to continue with that Absolutely. and even now yeah. my flatmate who's a teacher Every now and again, if she's coming from Donegal the week before, she'll bring she'll rushes bring, with her mm. and she'll make them with Dublin children who might not necessarily mm-hmm. know um, yeah. the custom. Yeah, yeah. And then they'll remember that, if only as a kind of cursory memory in the future. But even just making the effort to kind of just pass on those traditions is, yeah. is hugely important. It's, it is so important. It is so important. And the other thing I used to love about making the uh, the Bridget's crosses in school, like I think I think the school, primary schools have done a huge amount in, in the sense of to maintain yeah. these traditions so in a way. Important. But um, the fact that even if you don't, the, the creativity involved in making the cross, uh, which is seems to be pre-Christian in origin, the different mm-hmm. types, emblems, lozenges, kind of swastika type crosses, though not really, or, mm-hmm. or, or three-armed crosses and so on, um, is that once you just follow the traditional pattern, which isn't of your own making, mm-hmm. whether you know what you're doing or not, the, the, the structure appears. Yeah. It's just a lovely feeling that you just have to follow in on this thing. And eventually it manifests despite yourself, basically. But um, but yeah, it is so important to do. And even and those those uh, cloths, the Bridget's mantle, was sometimes uh, fishermen might take a piece of it and sew it into their clothing mm-hmm. to protect them from drowning. Um, pregnant women would sometimes use it to ensure um, safe delivery of, of children. Mm-hmm. And you like, might rub it on a cow's I, head to help with suckling. Is was that the yeah, case? Yeah. yeah. So. There's even that connection for, for, for cattle, which is common as well. And even one of the, the types of crosses, which we should discuss, I suppose, the different types, but there was a cross in Ulster in particular, the three-armed cross, which mm. was left in the for, for cattle. Yes, in the barn. Yeah. Um, but the idea that the Bridget's cross, which is a kind of four-armed cross. Um, it's going to be so difficult. If, if people don't know what they are, mm. um, it's worth 
just googling them because they're yeah. very intricate and i don't think any level yeah. of description will get them across in uh, in some of the the kind of 19th century um literature there were figures who were who were speculating on on the origins of the cross and suggesting it as being kind of part of the calling it like the gamadia or like a swastika basically but it doesn't have the, no. the hooked no. arm but it does have essentially the, the the four right angles which are you know the or the 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 idea, I suppose, the the four ninety degree angles that form the three hundred and sixty degrees of the sun, which yeah. is, of which the cross is a representative uh, emblem or whatever, um, and they are really pre-Christian in origin. It's well, that's what what the assumption is at least. But Anne O'Dowd makes the point in a marvelous book, as reading oh, over yes. Christmas, how, um, hay, straw, and rushes is a fantastic yeah, book. Well worth looking it up. Um, that she she kind of I suppose tries to move away from this this idea basically and, and Kevin Danaher was the same he he, he thought that there was much kind of speculation basically mm-hmm. on, on this whereas the origins weren't as clear but they are striking in their appearance it's not it's not a kind of Christian cross in the way that it, that it's expressed or manifest um, and certainly the three-armed cross has you know even the symbol for the people of the Isle of Man and so on and so forth True. the Triskelion or whatever so there's it's part of that tradition and that framework but it's it's difficult I suppose to to um deposit these kind of simple links or, or obvious links basically and should we say what they were because they were kept in the house they were yeah and yeah. they were placed either kind of beneath the rafters or in the thatch or above the door as mm. so as to bless the home and the family and um, but also those who entered the house mm. and there's a lovely little poem actually johnny you read it don't you from um, 1735 now do you want to pronounce that for me which that one there oh god this is a hesperinisographia okay and it goes, St. Bridget's cross hung over the door, which did the house from fire secure, as Gillow thought a powerful charm to keep the house from taking harm. And, the, and though the dogs and servants slept, by Bridget's care, the house was kept. Indeed. And so the cross is believed to have protective powers. We have one um, informant who speaks in County Meath that it protected the home and the building from tempest, thunder and storms. Mm. And so it was traditional each year to make the cross Kind of families might make them kind of one each and have them in the bedrooms mm-hmm. but kind of in later life and i know certainly kind of when i was growing up you might just have one or two in each house and so you would place them above the door or maybe above um, a, a holy picture mm. and it was thought to protect the house from kind of lightning and fire so it's more protective whereas when we read about the beliefs associated with the cloth or brathag regia that is kind of it seems to have curative powers mm. more so than perhaps protective powers. The bratha. The bratha, yeah. because it was associated with um, conditions of the head, so it was thought to cure headaches or dizziness or earaches, um, thro- kind of sore throats mm. and kind of those types of things. But people would carry them with them um, in handbags or, as you said, they might tie them into their clothes mm. um, for protection as well. And with the crosses, it used to be said that you could measure the age of a house mm-hmm. because some would actually keep all the crosses that yeah. they had ever made. Yeah. And so you could actually count them to tell the age of the house, which I think is so mm. sweet, really, isn't it? I remember a funny um, an account, uh, an anecdote that Michal Brioti ex- ex- expressed to me when he was in here doing some research in the archive where he described, and it's interesting, the role of the collector in, in um, negatively affecting, say, the survival of a folk tradition, where I'm not sure which collector it was. Was it Kevin Donner, maybe, or somebody? One of the, one of the folklore commission's collectors mm-hmm. were out in the field collecting from uh, the people somewhere around the country, saw the, these um, crosses and the rafters at the house with each one being put up every year, mm-hmm. and said something to the effect of, oh, fantastic, these... Here are these crosses, and uh, you know, are you aware of the pre-Christian origins and such and such of the kind of the history of these crosses, whatever? At which 
the the occupant of the home was was disgusted at the idea and figured them to be a good Catholic. Oh yes. Um, emblem. Emblem. And when this individual, the collector, came back the next time, that they'd all been thrown out. Oh no. They're all thrown away. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, I mean, they're, do you have any at home, in your home in Dublin even? What, what, oh crosses? yeah, we always have them in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. I have one in the sitting room and one of my grandmothers that I gave to a friend of mine. My, my parents have them up in the house. We have them here. In, well, we have them in the collection, obviously, the but collection. we actually have them in the archive we as our have one in the fire archive suppression. The archive. And yeah. It's a beautiful one, the, the, diamond, the many diamonds. We should yeah. take a photograph of that and put it online, actually. Oh, that's true. To protect the, uh, the manuscript, the archive, as it were. Yeah. I love that. that yeah. I that's our main that fire suppression if that's our archival fire suppression yeah. system in, in line with um, best practice, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the crosses and, and the mantle, I guess, are, are very large. Um, and should we just say, one of the things mm. that always gets me is, um, you kind of forget how old the traditions are, because it used to be a, a very elaborate um, ritual, I suppose, as to bringing the rushes into the house when people used to make crosses. So either they, on the night of Timbridge's Eve, the head of the household, or perhaps the eldest girl, who, who might, if you were lucky, be called Bridget, mm. would bring the rushes from outside but she had this whole ritual we're told of going around the house sunwise three times mm. knocking each time and um saying go mm. which is basically something along the lines of um go on your knees open your eyes and let in holy bridget but those are the terms that we were told as children by our grandparents yeah. and this is recorded in 1942 in our St. Bridget's questionnaire here mm-hmm. and that's remembering grandparents from the 1890s yeah. and it, it, it just I kind of just you, you absorb these things as children but you don't realise I, I said it my mother said it my grandmother said it yeah. her grandmother said yeah, it yeah it's beautiful you know it's beautiful I love that there's a huge resonance even when you speak the words that have been spoken for so long yeah. and that, that kind of formula that formula whatever and even the idea of, of welcoming her in she's welcomed into every home like you know the I don't know the, the, the sense of the dawn or the light or some illuminating force whatever she mm. comes to all the houses but I have a piece here um, that relates to the construction of crosses if I can find it so here's um, a short account collected by Leo Corduff um, from one Paddy Plunkett in Westmead, in Kindergarten in Westmead. This is from 1971 and it just describes briefly the, the process of, of um, um, making the making the crosses as an idea that in apocryphal tradition that Bridget showed these to teach the pagans okay. about Christ and Christianity. Oh yeah, well I make the St. Bridget's cross to, uh, for February, St. Bridget's Day. You can collect the rushes and it's not too hard. You're sure at once, you know, how to do it always. Well, did they have any uh, prayers or any sort of a ceremony at all on St. Bridget's Night? Not that I know of now in the olden days. No, just uh, St. Bridget's Cross was made and hung up on the wall for the year. And after the year... It well, do? it's withered, it's nearly gone again, the year is up, you see. You make a fresh one then, again, the following St. Bridget's Day. From rushes? Oh, they're made from rushes, yes. Uh, pure rushes. They're supposed to be uh, that St. Bridget had a cross when she was uh, teaching some of the pagans about the true faith and she had no cross, a wooden cross or iron cross or whatever it be at the time and she took up the rushes and she formed this and it's in the shape of a cross almost you see that's the tradition attached to it 
So the tradition attached to the to the cross there. There's a nice little um, piece that I just noticed in that interview where when he's editing this, he's he's chatting to this guy for quite a while, Leo, who worked in the sound archive here for many years and is a great great collector. Um, but he, the, the 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 guy when he's having the conversation isn't hugely forthcoming with his answers. They're kind of a bit short. But he does a great thing. It only takes a second or two seconds, but he just holds the silence after the question that he's asked, where your natural inclination in a conversation is to fill that gap because, you know, who sits in silence or whatever. Um, but when in the context of recording and collecting folklore, it's often, it's when, when you sit, don't say anything, that then this guy, he then starts to, to come out with a more a slightly yeah. more detailed account whereas up until then it's it's a bit short and kind of they're, they're a bit yes no kind of uh, answers but you it's just it's a skill you have to learn it though is, because yeah, it's you such just a natural instinct to yeah. fill the silence you know but you just kind of sit in that or whatever and then and then more more comes out that was from 1971 do you um, know what got me when he says that um there weren't that many um so kind of customs for the festival of the night one of the things was um i mentioned it at the beginning brutiny Brutini, oh. Do you know what brutini are? No. Oh, you haven't lived, Johnny. Is this food or something? Yeah, it's a mashed potato. potato. With the butter in it? In yes. The or something? Oh, so yeah. when we were little, um, our parents would give us mashed potato. Um, I sound like such a... It was sold already. <laughs> but it was amazing because um, they would build it into little castles. Yeah, you... and they'd scoop a thing. A exactly. Scoop a hole in it or yeah, something. Yeah, so there's a, kind of a, a little kind of castle of mashed potato. They'd scoop out the middle. We're not living the stereotypes here at all. Not at all, the potato. Yeah. And they would, <laughs> um, they would put milk in it and then a dollop of butter. But you, you couldn't breach the sides because everything would come out. So it was your kind of... Oh, the challenge who could get who could eat it and kind of maintain the castle destroy the castle without, without breaching the castle walls exactly exactly Amazing. but um, in Donegal still um, in where I'm from um, on St Bridget's Eve there'll be gatherings to make crosses and people will have brutiny mm. and it's lovely and again you think oh I'm the only one having brutiny mm-hmm. but then you realise actually everyone has brutiny on this yes, night yes. and we still do it and you know as well milk and, and butter and so exactly. scarce at this time of year exactly. so, so and yet and it's all dairy and St. Bridget yeah, and, and the cow the fertility and, and propagation and this, this large you know abundant pool of butter that you're mm. eating from but at the time for our forebears you need to consider the fact that that, that Milk and milk production and butter. So there isn't much mm. around at this time of year. But again, even the sense of, of Bridget and, and, and constantly being able to um, uh, to provide food and milk and so on for her, for those in her care, basically. Mm. Uh, and brewed beer. She brewed enormous amounts of beer for I all of her that. churches. I read that. What a legend. Mm. Anyway. Um, no wonder she's so popular with the Irish. No wonder. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Should we discuss the idea of um, the Biddy Boys? Yes. Or the, the breed dog in general? Yes, because this is always what I'm curious about because we don't have the tradition um, in the north of Ireland in the same where was way. It, where was it more? In, in it seemed Mon- to be more Monster, Monster into the West because Kevin Danaher had um, a distribution map and mm. it, it didn't feature up with us at all. So it wasn't a thing in Leinster either. Yeah, Even yeah. the cross-making tradition wasn't very strong in Leinster, which is, I don't know, it's strange because you'd wonder, you know, did these customs if they came from cultural inputs, you know, Britain, Cornwall, Scotland, Wales, whatever, mm. that you'd almost expect a stronger distribution on the on the eastern coast. But it seems that it's more down in, in Munster or yeah. Connacht, I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I'm um, curious. But the, I suppose the basic idea is that a band of young men or young women in, an, in a local area would, would dress up an effigy of the saint, mm-hmm. which they call the Biddy or the Brido. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite frightening in some instances yeah hilariously so yeah mm. and well even, not even, hilariously 
Well, it was like an old turnip dressed in a kind of baby's... Um, Very terrifying, The, the I think clothing so. used for christening sometimes yeah. or whatever. But it was treated with, with reverence and respect and so on, but uh, it, it looked... It looked um, it looked like something out of a horror movie, I'm sorry. Did a little bit. Me. Yeah, but, um, but this would be borne aloft by the youngsters in the area who were often in total disguise mm-hmm. and who would call from house to house bringing the effigy of a saint. So again, you see, I suppose, the same resonance the idea of the saint calling from house to house mm-hmm. or whatever. And they'd come in, they'd play songs and music, they might entreat the occupants to give them some money um, or not, but either way, the the, the the blessing of the saint, I suppose, would be put, put on the house or whatever. And they go from place to place. Um, so you have the idea, again, that you see often in counter custom, this idea of um, the reversal of, of social norms and yes. the breaking of taboos in a traditional framework and an inversion of norms so that you have maybe men or young men uh, who are anonymous, who are dressed in rags or dressed in women's clothes, mm. wearing masks, um, and who go around from house to house engaging in behaviours that you can't normally, but you kind of break the ties that, that bind in order to reaffirm them. It's not just um, a kind of, I don't know, degeneration into meaningless kind of forms of, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, transgression or something yeah. like that. It, it's it's a, a formulaic process where you kind of take the lid off the pot for a while or whatever. Um, but that was that was took part in, in, in different parts of the country. And we have, again, some tapes and accounts of, of that. This is in County Sligo, 1975. This is Tommy Conway. Uh, and it was collected by Ellie Madden. And Tommy's talking about St. Bridget's Night and travelling to houses and what the, what the basic the process entailed. Then St. Bridget's Night was another one. <coughs> you, you put a false face on you. Mm-hmm. And he went out the 31st of January. That's Bridget's Night. Mm-hmm. St. Bridget's Night. Yeah. Well, they can't say Bridget's Round to you now. Yeah. So it's a wooden door. They used to in, in, when I seen it first. Yeah. Carry a rent on the house so there'd be one. A malode, you're not a flute on a tin cushion. And he'd have a couple with them to dance. Mm-hmm. Well, they the take flour, they take tea, or they take sugar, they take anything you give them. So they were given tea and flour and sugar and the likes. And it was times. taught um, bad form to send them away empty handed mm. because you were going against Bridget's charity mm-hmm. yes. so that you would um, kind of bring ill will and ill fortune to the house for the year if you um, didn't give them if at least something. Them something. Mm-hmm. Um, here's another piece from Tommy Conway. In this piece, it's slightly more com- difficult to understand what exactly he's saying. I think he has a pipe in his mouth and right. kind of, you know, talking a while. Love it. Um, and so, but he's basically saying that an, an effigy was made of the saint and it was treated with great reverence. She asked then, the collector asks, what happened to the effigy after a year? Did they use the same one? And he misinterprets the question and says, oh, no, the tradition has died out here. Um, I think that he says it's gone away from here. But then she, she says, no, like, what happened to the effigy? And he says, oh, yeah, they, they used a different one. So mm. you might have to listen a few times, but um, this is the same guy, Tommy Conway. Um, uh, I'm pretty to say, why did they carry the dial around? That was China St. Bridget. To Irish St. Bridget. Yeah. You know, a dial. You know, the China St. Bridget, actually, you were... We were out collecting for her, making great wood, you understand? Mm-hmm. Well, I see a big time to a man coming in, I mean, when I was a grasshopper, and he, he, well, he was as high, he nearly gives the wind, and I'm having this baby with him, you know, mm-hmm. a stuffed doll, and mm-hmm. oh, I took the best to care of it. And what did they do with the doll then at the end of the night? Did they keep the same doll every year, or did they have to uh, well, the Well, it's the other separate side there, and she died out, you know, then. And, 
when that generation left, our left, do you understand? For the doll, do they use the same doll every year or do they make up a new doll? Ah, they used to make up for it and like, well of course, you know, in bad nights, you know, the, when they'd have the doll made up, you know, when they'd have to be able to make it a bad night. There's an interesting bit there. He describes, he says, when I was a gosso, or he sees a guy, a guy coming in as tall as the window, or something like that, with a baby, and this is the this is Richard. the energy. But quite a striking um, thing to see as a young child. Oh, and, I'd and imagine so. There's an account I read from a woman. I forget. I think she might have been in Galway or one of the islands or something. I could be mistaken. But I've read an account of a woman who's an elderly woman when she's describing this account, and she recounts as a, as a youth. Um, on St. Bridget's night on January 31st staying up mm. to witness the, the biddy boys come into the house and she hides under a table unbeknownst to her parents and she's meant to be asleep in bed uh, they come in they're brandished they're wearing rags they have the effigy they're wearing strange clothes they're masks their faces are covered in straw and masks and nothing can be seen of their eyes mm. or anything like this they're playing music and so on and one of them saw her under the table oh. and came over and brandished the effigy oh at her God. and she was absolutely terrified totally terrified I've seen other pictures as well of, um, I forget what, what the photographer's name was, but there's a series of images taken, I think in the 1980s, maybe or 70s. Oh, is this from County Clare by any chance? Is it? With oh, the little boys? It's not the Folklore Commission's oh, is it uh, images. Oh, okay. it, it's a publication of this photographer's oh. of, of the Biddy Boys. Uh, and there's one where an elderly woman is holding uh, on her, um, kind of holding up to her... Uh, the crook of her arm. The crook of her arm. A, a, her grandson or granddaughter, you see, who's maybe two or three. And beside them is standing this biddy boy with all his mask and the effigy and so on. And the child is looking at them like, what? You can see the child is just, what in the name of God is this? And this is the thing that you often find as well with folk tradition. It's not some sanitized kind of, um, you know, the airy fairy Victorian Tinkerbell kind Mm. of thing. It's often very terrifying and dark and and interesting and more. I used to be terrified by the mummers when they would come at Halloween. Like there's. And then they weren't even hardcore in the way that mm. these guys probably are. But yeah, there's it's very strange. Very it's, strange. It impacts on you in symbolic ways yeah. and the whole removal of the the identity of the individual and just the, the because they're your neighbours. So yeah, you know, but you don't but, know. But you don't know, no, and they're the coming into your home. Yeah, yeah. Very, very dark. Yeah. Sometimes. Incredible, incredible. Um, okay, so let's, I suppose the effigy, the biddy boys, the 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 construction of crosses. Um, uh, and we should and so say on. the um, the belt. Is it worth saying? Because yeah, definitely. Yeah. This is something that I don't, I don't know what he meant about. No. And it's restricted to only, I don't know, certain portions of the country. It is. And it seems to be in the West, um, from what I can gather now. Where, mm. where am I? So it's called St. Bridget's Belt or Chris Regia. And now we would not. I, I actually only heard about this when I spoke to our, our professor, Dr. Barbara Nealon here. She actually did some recording in Galway, I believe, last year. Mm. And she actually had some <coughs> videos of. Um, people who still know the tradition and still practice the tradition showing her how it works and it was just incredible to me I'd never heard of it Um, because for a long time given the different dialects that we speak I thought she was saying cross region I'm like oh yeah we have that in Donegal yeah yeah and just completely um, undermining her excitement that she'd you know found this living Mm -hmm. tradition and then we realised that we were actually talking about two different things Mm. so essentially if you imagine it's um, a straw rope looped into a belt so we're talking eight to ten feet it's plaited um, or something is it? i think so yes and it's got three little crosses and um, also plaited, plaited into, it. into it they're not so, they're not made separately and stuck in they're part no, of it they, they're part weird. of it I, as far as i can tell amazing and kind of kevin danaher in the year in ireland speaks about this as well so it's a long eight to ten foot rope and um, plaited w- with straw then it's twisted into a belt so it's a circular shape and it would be taken again in the way of procession 
mm. from house to house and men, women and children would be made to pass through it to secure a blessing for the year ahead. And it was interesting because it's obviously pointed out that men pass through it one way where you actually, if you imagine someone holding a circle in mm -hmm. front of you, you kind of dip and duck in through it. Head first kind of. Head first. Yeah. Whereas a woman, it's allowed to be kind of passed. She can stand straight and it can pass through her and she steps out of it. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and the same for children. So that in itself is unusual. Mm. And as well, they were saying that there used to be the practice of placing it on the door of a barn in the morning so that the cattle would also pass through mm -hmm. it. Uh, and again, it's for protective purposes as opposed to curative purposes. But that's St. Bridget's Belt and it's known only in the, the west of Ireland. Mm. Um, which is kind of unique. It's I, fascinating. I certainly it's, hadn't it's, heard of yeah. it. Yeah, and it's amazing that, that even Barbara's managed to record that because I, I thought yeah. that that was, uh, well, it just disappeared as a kind of, as a practice. I didn't mm. realise it was in living tradition at all. Um, and it kind of, she, actually, just to finish off, in Galway, uh, mentioned in our questionnaire, there's a little, um, I suppose, rhyme that they would say when they would go to the house. Mm. And it goes, Shohi ishtam mwchiras, kiris frijim mwchiras, kiris nidri gras, um, Iri suas of anati, igus chief frigicris, mus fera tesh of north, gumashart fera vish of bienio north, mm. which is basically something along the lines of here in comes my belt, my belt is Bridge's belt, um, the belt of three crosses, rise up, woman of the house, and pass through the belt. Um, if you're well tonight, may you be seven times as well a year from tonight. Mm. Um, and it's the same way that they did with the, what was it? the blessing of the is the crosses you kind of have this common idea of if you're well tonight may you be tenfold yeah. the, in, in this year mm. or this night in next year and um, seven times better this night next year mm. so um it's again it's about securing profit and prosperity for and the protecting family. the home and yeah. even as well um i don't have uh, it in front of me here but you know the little prayer so unprepared but well, anyway. i thought you might throw a lob of mortar over the wall there uh you know that little prayer about um when and it relates even to the idea of this perpetual fire that that Gerald's comprehensive mentions earlier when smoring the fire at night that the 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 ashes were kind of raked over it mm. in order to leave the embers at the center so it was still kind of lighting yeah but in the morning, you just need to give it a poke and it would go again. You didn't need to light the new fire. So the fire was never technically extinguished. But there's a traditional there's a traditional prayer um, used to invoke Bridget's protection over the fire. Oh. So that the bloody house doesn't burn down, of course, um, in the night or whatever. Which is an interesting kind of... Association. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's remarkable. But due to my intense unpreparedness, Claire, I don't have the prayer to hand. Well, I've come to expect nothing less. Oh, but anyway... Moving <laughs> But it is, it's just, it's so, so interesting to, to have this time to look over it and have an occasion, I think, for us to study it because like, there's so little time in life sometimes to sit down and learn about St. Bridget and these practices, there is. you know. Yeah. So I've, I've really enjoyed this. this I think it's something episode. we should urge listeners as well. I mean, if you're in Ireland or further afield mm. um, to, I suppose, look at the, um, the symbolic expressions that are native to us and to our forebears and so on, that act as kind of symbolic reference points in the I don't know a supernatural kind of understanding of the life cycle or a divine understanding of the life cycle of birth regeneration renewal then the process of death and decay with this en endless kind of repetitions of cycles or spirals or whatever um, and I think in Bridget is there's a huge amount of, of a kind of power or current to tap into I think in that sense to come to an understanding of her not just the figure of the saint not just the mythological tradition in Ireland or in Europe mm. but all the way back to this this Vedic tradition and just to prize open the 
the spring essentially mm-hmm. um but yeah an incredible figure one who who's very resonant i think powerful even even today after the with the, with the i could say the formal kind of collapse in many ways of um of a meaningful spiritual tradition for many people in the west i think mm-hmm. that she still lives on she's yeah. still and these this is the things that the joy i felt in the bus reading this this hymn that they, like these lines are still there if you, if you can dig through them you can you can still find these living waters that run through um today basically do you stand at the front of the bus and try and convert the, the masses the masses yes no i'm not interested in converting the masses here <laughs> beneath me of course um did you want to finish with is there anything else that we haven't uh, covered um no i think that was my only last curious thing if just... there's something else then i'll just say good luck all right but Yes. I think that we've gone on now quite a bit. I know, I think. You're ranting away. But just for the sake of um, one of the things that jumped out that I thought was really interesting was obviously naming children after Bridget would have mm. been very popular as a custom in the past. So anyone who was born on the 1st of February or in the days preceding or just afterwards, they would be called Bridget. Um, and sometimes the eldest daughter in a family might also be called Bridget. Mm. So there is the naming that I can very few Irish families will not have have a Bridget or a Bridge or a Brida or a Bridie or a um, Babs or you know any kind of variation of it but one of the things that I came across that kind of broke my heart in a way as well was um, discovered by Noel Kassan that emigrants in say America particularly he looked at those who had Irish names like Bridget, Kathleen um, and kind of other well-known kind of Marys if they were in domestic service, these names became associated with that kind of servile, um, lowly status. And mm-hmm. so they were seen to change them at times. Mm. So they might become Belinda's or mm. these kind of Bernice's. Um, That's an unfortunate affectation. Well, this is it, maybe to try and kind of remove themselves from what they in, saw in as maybe kind of that kind of class structure mm. um, and that they would change them. But that some poor woman it's... came in Bodike in County Clare that there's some reference to her going to the priest and saying, my daughter wants to be called Bernice. And the priest apparently, now again, this could just all be kind of the narrative lore, but that the priest said, do you not know that um, Bernice was one of Nero's whores? And, and that <laughs> quite quickly... What a legend, that guy. No, quite quickly put um, uh, an end to that so I think she remained Bridget Amazing. as far it's, as I it's, know. It's ironic and sad again given the disconnect or the, the, the I don't know that the name um, you know which means yeah, most high most lofty high, exalted yeah. one her highness goddess of the dawn kind of thing they don't know. it's like hey you pot washer you know yeah. what I mean it's terrible. But sure we didn't know until we started here. Well so, now we know and now you know. Exactly so if you're called Bridget you are very lucky Yeah. Um, and if you are having your birthday next week yes. for the first um, we wish you well. We bless my, you at this time. Yes because my granny was actually a Bridget ah, um, indeed. and she would be 95 next week so happy birthday to all the Bridges. Yes indeed happy birthday to all the Bridges. Now do you want to finish with them? Um, my 15 minute poem? Your 15 minute poem. Well could we decide yesterday at the end to close we just have a sense of what does Bridget Breed mean to mm. us basically. But, um, so yes, oh no, this is the problem with this book. There are so many, um, have you dog eared? Dog eared, yeah, relentlessly. Dog eared books, Johnny, that's what bookmarks are for. No, well, there are too many. I've obviously, oh, page 80. Um, you're meant to be an archivist, that's not good preservation. It's just a symbol of how much I love them. Mm. The more tattered they are, um. This is a little poem. There's no, there's no date for it. I think, um, 
but it's from it's medieval Irish lyrics by James Carney um, and it describes it's called Dawn basically and it fits thematically with a lot of what we were describing but again as a figure I suppose Bridget Breed as one who's bears the, the, the idea of propagation and renewal and and uh, illuminating knowledge that comes out of the dark and so on I think it's it's moving in its expression or whatever so this is what I've chosen to finish with excellent um, so Don it says come into my dark oratory be welcome the bright morn and blessed he who sent you victorious self-renewing Don maiden of good family son's sister daughter of proud knight ever welcome the fair morn that brings my mass book light touching the face of each house illumining every kin white necked and gold bedecked welcome imperious one come in that's lovely. Mm, it's a fine one, all right. That's very nice. Can't beat the medieval heads. Yes, you do love them, don't you? Fond of them, all right. Well, I'm going to read one. Um, this is a poem that I found, and it's by the great Irish writer. Um, See, if you dog-eared the page, Claire. I would know. Um, where is it? Martin O'Giran, who many will know as the great mm. Irish language writer um, from the West. And he's so interesting in that he grew up... Um, in one of the Iron Islands, mm-hmm. but spent much of his life in the city. In Dublin. And he, his writing speaks a lot about kind of this feeling of dislocation, I suppose, yeah. and isolation um, from that kind of traditional world that he would have known in the world of kind of the Irish language. But he is one who you should read. Um, Absolutely. You know, what's the word? I've lost the word now. He had quite an interest in Nietzsche, I do believe. Martin O'Giron. He did. Mm. Yes. Apparently. There's a good documentary I watched about him. But see, we actually have an exhibition in the School of Irish at the moment on March and Adjourn. If anyone's kind of Dublin-based, it's well worth coming it into. Is. They've done a lovely job. But um, a very interesting and gifted writer. Uh, and YouTube, Martin O'Duran. Oh, yes. doc- there is a documentary about him, which is Perfect. well worth watching. It's true, actually. YouTube is great for those kind mm. of things. One of the benefits of technology. Mm-hmm. So he has a lovely poem called Anne Chara Here, mm. which is kind of maybe spring in the West. Now, I'm going to do what might be blasphemous, but there's a lovely book called Lorna Hachaula, Poems of Repossession, edited by the great Dr. Louis de Puyre. And it basically has the Irish texts and then they're translated into English. So what I'm going to do, because I kind of realise maybe some of our listeners wouldn't understand the Irish poem. So what I'll do is I'll read the English translation by, um, I think it's Peter Sir, who does a nice job. Now, you will never beat the Irish original by Martin O'Giron's mm-hmm. hand. So I might just take a photo and put both maybe on Twitter so that you can see. But just for the sake of... If you don't burst into flames first. But... I probably will. I probably will. But um, I'll read the English version just um, so that people can kind of read along with me. So it's called Spring in the West. A man scraping clay from the thread of a spade in the mild calm of a warm day, sweet the sound of spring in the west. A man slinging a creel from his back, the red seaweed glittering in the light on a stone beach, beautiful the sight of spring in the west. Women standing, their coats tucked up, the ebb tide pools like mirrors beneath them, the peaceful sight of spring in the west. The hollow beat of oar strokes, a curra full of fish, coming in to shore on a still gold sea at the end of the day, spring in the West. And Amazing. so on the 1st of February, as we welcome a new season and the beginning of the traditional calendar, um, we hope you have a wonderful and prosperous, healthy, happy and joyful new year. Indeed. Hail unto that. Perfect. Um, we shall see you next month. And I'm off to explore some divine vengeance now. Nice. Lovely. I hope I shall survive. Hard to say. Right. We never know. <laughs>
pretty well good people. And more hydrates, Lance. Go on. <laughs>